Welcome and good morning. It's exciting to see you all greeting one another. It's great that we get to do that again. I hope that yesterday you got outside and able to get a little taste of summer. I think uh, more spring weather is coming our way, but at least we had that for a while. This morning we're going to go back to our series on Acts. And so that you know, we're going to stay in Acts through the rest of the summer and into the fall and probably sometime the Beginning of October, we'll switch from Acts and then have a short series on discipleship before we go into the Advent season. Now, as you may remember, we left off in Acts 11 with our dynamic duo of Barnabas and Saul who were in the Antioch church and they were discipling there for about a year. Today, we're going to pick up their adventures in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. So if you can turn there now in your Bibles, we'll get started with that in just a minute. But while you're doing that, I want to tell you a story. In the early 1700s, there was a man by the name of Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. How's that for a name? And obviously from his title, he was from an aristocratic family. He was nobility. And he decided to buy from his grandmother a country estate in a place called Bertelsdorf, Germany, which is in eastern Germany, not too far from the current Czech border. And his goal was to establish a new Christian community on this estate. And so he started with a small group of Christians that met in his mansion. He had always wanted to be a pastor, but because of his noble title, he got pulled into the legal profession instead. Now, at the time, Austria, which was a neighbor of Germany, was Catholic, heavily Catholic. And so they started persecuting Christians during the Reformation. So many Christians started to leave this area, particularly from an area called Moravia, and they started fleeing out of the country, and many of them came to Count Zinzendorf's estate, and he allowed them to settle his estate and start a little new community. And he called this new community Hernhut, which means under the Lord's watch. Now, a church was started, and as it began, many other persecuted Protestants starts coming from a group called United Brethren, which includes both Anabaptists and Waldensians. Those were two groups that came out of the Reformation, but these came from a place called Bohemia. So Bohemia is what is currently more Western Czechia, it's called, it used to be Czechoslovakia, and Moravia was more Eastern, and they both came down to this community. But this new growing congregation by 1726 started bickering. They started to lose their unity. There were different ideas about communion and ceremonies and customs. You know, the original worship wars. It went on long before it was in our time. There were different ideas about all these things between the Moravians and the Bohemians, and some had come from a Calvinistic or Hussite tradition, which are, again, two branches of the Reformation. Others had come from a pure, more Lutheran tradition, and it was causing conflict in this young community. So Count Zinzendorf decided to meet with each family. He decided to lean into the conflict, and he met with the whole congregation one Sunday morning of about 300 people, and he reminded them of their call to mutual obligation, their need for Christian unity and love as Christ gave us in his great priestly prayer between John 15 and John 17. And he decided to draw up a covenant, and he asked each family to pray about the covenant before they signed it, to see if the Holy Spirit 
was calling them to be part of this new community. And then something special happened. On August 13, 1727, after an all-night prayer meeting, we don't see those much anymore. I think in my life, I've been a Christian my whole life, and I think I've been part of two all-night prayer meetings, and those can be powerful. But after this particular one, the congregation met and was convicted of their disunity. They asked Jesus to forgive them of that. As they participated in communion, many people started to confess their sins. And then they sang a hymn, and this powerful wave of emotion swept over the congregation with an awareness of the holiness of God, which was like a purging fire, and it led to this deeper level of repentance. A new vigor and a new passion filled their worship as they saw the power and the glory of the Holy Spirit descend on this community, this new assembly. The sweetness of God's presence was so strong that no one wanted to leave the church. No football games to get to, no Sunday afternoon dinner. They all wanted to stay together, and they did. They started to meet in small groups. They started to confess their sins to each other. They actually sent out for food as the afternoon turned into the evening because they just wanted to stay together. A unity was formed. And it's reported that after this event, great signs and wonders, miracles, happened in this small community. Several years later, John Wesley visited the church and was amazed at the love of God evident in this church family. Prayer groups started, and it actually turned into a 24-hour prayer vigil that didn't last one week, it didn't last one month, didn't last one year, it didn't even last one decade. It lasted 100 years. Can you imagine the power that happened in those prayer meetings for 100 years? Well, several years after the outpouring of the Spirit, the church felt called to send missionaries to the Caribbean. And over the next 150 years, this small church sent out over 2,158 of its members to all around the world, bringing the good news of Jesus to people who had never heard it before. And the great Protestant mission movement was begun. Jesus has chosen to expand his kingdom through his church. When the church commits to prayer and the unity, the Holy Spirit empowers and sends them. And this is as true today as it was in the 1700s, as it was in the first century in Antioch. This morning we're going to see uh, as the Holy Spirit releases two men out of the Antioch church to begin to proclaim the good news of Jesus and expand the kingdom of God. But I hope that we will also see that the Holy Spirit continues to call each and every believer and empowers them to share the word of God and apply it. Let's begin by asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word now and ask God to apply it to our lives as he's will. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful this morning that you have allowed us to participate in the expanding kingdom of Jesus. How I pray that you would empower this church to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus and to be used by you to confront and overcome the power of evil in our world through the power of your Holy Spirit in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
This morning we're going to look at our text in three different sections. Again, we're in Acts 13, verses 1 through 12, and so I'll read these in three different sections. This first section describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Antioch church to release Paul and Barnabas from the ministry in Antioch to begin their first missionary journey. Listen as the Holy Spirit calls and then sends. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now this first section emphasizes how God uses the local church to call people to accomplish his will. The Antioch church releases Paul and Barnabas from this, by this, to this mission of the Holy Spirit, and they head out in about AD 45. They'll come back two years later in AD 47, and they'll report back to their sending church, the Antioch church, all that God has done through them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that as we come back to Acts 14 later on. Now, two specific spiritual gifts are mentioned here in the text, prophets and teachers. Now, we're not told which of these leaders had these gifts, that they both, all of them had both gifts, or some had one and some had the other, but we can tell by these two gifts that are listed that these are the leaders of this Antioch church. Now, these men represented the diverse nature of the church in the city. Now, we know Barnabas and Saul from our discussions on Acts 11 that we went through previously. Simeon was a black man, as Niger means black. He is probably from North Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, which definitely is in North Africa. And we have a map. It's in your bulletin today. Hold on to that map because, again, as we go through Acts, that map will keep us from getting lost because we're going to go all over the place. But over here we can see today we're going to be talking about the church in Antioch here, which is up in Syria. Paul and Barnabas are going to be released to go down to the port of Seleucia, and then they're going to head over to Cyprus here. We'll be looking at Salamis and Paphos. But what we were just talking about is Cyrene, which is way down here in Africa. And so men came from here to Jerusalem, heard Peter's Pentecost sermon, became Christians, and then spread the gospel north, including to Cyprus. Now, the text tells us Manan was someone who had been raised with Herod Tetrarch. Tetrarch is just a a Roman title equivalent to our governor. And this would have been Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one who killed John the Baptist. He was the youngest son of Herod the Great, and he ruled from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39, and then he was replaced by Herod Agrippa I, and he was the one that killed the Apostle John and that we read about his death in Acts chapter 12, right before our text this morning. Now, the Menaean had a high position in Herod's court um, because he was a good friend of Herod growing up. And so he probably was the person that Luke used to get information about Herod as Luke wrote his Gospels and probably the, the information about John the Baptist when he was killed. Now the text says, as the church was worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit 
said. What was that? Was, what did that sound like? Was that an audible voice? Well, the text doesn't tell us. It could have been an audible voice, but more than likely the Holy Spirit spoke through one of the prophets were there. Or it could be that the Holy Spirit convicted all the leaders there of what he was calling the church to do. The fasting would indicate an urgent desire to hear from God. They fasted and prayed both before and after they received this call. So they fasted before and prayed before to get that message, to get direction from the Holy Spirit, and then afterwards to make sure and confirm that this is what they all heard from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls, commissions, and empowers. Let me repeat that. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls, commissions, and empowers. This laying out of hands was a, a physical touching that symbolized an act of blessing, an act of commissioning, an act of sending off. And they sent their two main leaders. They sent their two senior pastors, which meant they sent their very best. But remember, it also means they had a great team left at Antioch to continue the mission of discipling those new believers. Now, several points are worth mentioning here. First, the leadership matched the demographics of the city. So should ours. So should ours. Second, the Holy Spirit speaks when people worship pray, and fast. It's nothing magical, but it opens our hearts and minds to the power of God. It, it declares our seriousness, our, our commitment, our fervent desire to be aligned with Christ Jesus. It should be our posture and our attitude always. You know, as we contemplate a vision of serving the communities of Barrington and Hales and Carpentersville and Algonquin, um, and we might be possibly spending millions of dollars on a building on Route 25, we need to be in prayer and fasting as we worship God so that we can be as sure as we can this side of eternity of what God is asking of so we can align ourselves with his will and purpose for us. God is calling us to take his message of Jesus to these new communities. He has set us apart for this specific task. You know, when the Village Church of Barrington sent the team to start this church, they had a commissioning service. It wasn't as spontaneous as what we just saw in Acts, but it was just as directive. And we have a picture here of that actual ceremony. His front row was the team that was there that morning. That's Pastor Todd and Jeannie. The back row are the elders and pastors, and they are laying their hands on this team, praying for them, asking God's blessing, and commissioning them or sending them off. But make no mistake, it is the Holy Spirit who is directing this mission, just like he was in Antioch. Lastly, this section emphasizes the importance of prayer. The Scottish evangelical preacher Thomas Chalmers said, Prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. So we see that when we pray, the Holy Spirit calls and sends us. But the next section, we'll see that he does this for a very specific reason. So that we can share the great news of Jesus Christ. 
Follow along now as I read our next section, verses 4 through 7. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Note here how even though the church commissioned Barnabas and Paul, it was the Holy Spirit that was directing this mission. Now, Seleucia is on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's about five miles uh, where the Orontes River enters the Mediterranean, and it was a port city about 16 miles west of Antioch. And we have a little satellite image here. You can see here's the city of Antioch. The Orontes River kind of winds down here and comes into the Mediterranean here. And this is the port that they took off from. Go to the next slide. And so here's a blow-up satellite image, and the city was up here and up here, there at least the remains of it, and then they would have to go away from, this is the actual port that Paul and Barnabas would have left from, from Seleucia. And then they headed to a place called Cyprus, an island. We've talked about Cyprus before. Remember, this was Barnabas' hometown. This was his home turf. So he probably had family and friends there, and that's probably one of the reasons that they would go there. But also, remember that we were told in Acts chapter 11 that some Christians had already gone away from Jerusalem to Cyprus and brought the message of Jesus Christ. So Paul and Barnabas may be going there to confirm and expand those efforts. And they arrive at the eastern port of Salamis, which was the former capital of the island before the Romans took over. It was a commercial center, it was a port. They exported some wood, but mainly copper. The full north third of the island had rich mineral deposits of copper, and that's how Cyprus actually got its name was because of the copper. Now, it had a good harbor, and this harbor actually housed a portion of the Roman imperial fleet. They anchored there until they were needed elsewhere. Now, as always, the team heads first to the synagogues to the Jews to preach to the Jews. And that was the pattern established by Jesus in the Gospels, and then continued by the apostles, and then continued by Paul throughout his missionary career. And then if the Jews accepted or rejected it, he then went to the Gentiles. Now, this, um, they raid their way through the island. Uh, we have a blow-up here of the island. Um, so the port, the Sal Salamis is right about here. This is the harbor that they had. The team made their way through the island. They would go through the southern portion where there was a good road, and they ended up here in Paphos. It was about 112 miles. So it would have taken about eight days to walk, but they stopped along the way into each of the synagogues to share the gospel with each one. Now, Paphos was a city that was newly built by the Romans after a major earthquake hit the whole island, destroyed most of the structures on the island in 15 BC. And we actually have some today, this very day, you can go to the island, go to the next slide, and you can see the Roman ruins in Paphos. This was an amphitheater, so Paul and Barnabas probably walked on these very roads. Go to the next one. And this is left over some building foundations and streets, and then the next one. And this is leftover of a temple. And there's Roman ruins on today on Paphos as well as in Paphos as well as in Salamis. You can go and see those. The island is mostly a tourist attraction now. It has some beautiful hotels. Well, here in Paphos, they met two people. They met a Jew 
who was a false prophet as evidenced by the fact that he was a magician. And Torah law forbid Jews from being involved with magicians, so he would have at some point had to abandon his Jewish faith. His name was Bar Jesus. Bar is the Hebrew word for son, Jesus, son of Jesus. Jesus was the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, son of Joshua. Now, it's ironic that he had the name Jesus because Paul and Barnabas are going to be teaching these people, proclaiming the good news of Jesus the Messiah, no relation to this man. Now, a magician would have been someone who uses incantation and spells to gain favor with the gods, to manipulate the gods, to overturn curses that people have applied and then apply blessings, particularly to leaders. It was important to leaders to have this. Now, he was working for a man, the text tells us, Paul tells, or Luke tells us, named Sergius Paulus, who was proconsul. Now, it's fascinating that on Cyprus, we have some important archaeological artifacts. In 1877, they found a relief on the northern coast of, the, of Cyprus, dated to the mid-first century. And if you put up that slide, this is the relief here. And right about, I know it's hard to make out, but right in this area here, they found this name. Quintus Sergius Paulus, who was proconsul. That whole phrase is in that relief. And so this confirms what Dr. Luke was writing. It was historical. Now, this family that this man was from was a wealthy family. They actually found another inscription in Rome in an arch, and then they found a stone in Pisidian Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are be going next after they leave Cyprus, they're going to go to Pisidian Antioch, and that's where they found this stone. And it was found that the family had a, a big estate in Pisidian Antioch, and they found this stone with L. Sergius Paulus, which was this man's son. So this family was very influential in Rome, as you can imagine. That's why they got this job. Now, Cyprus was a Roman province and since 22 BC. What, what did that mean, a Roman province? Well, there were 10 Roman provinces throughout the Roman Empire. Those were areas that needed no Roman troops. They were peaceful. They were governed by the Senate through something called a proconsul. It'd be like our governor, someone who works with the power or functions as a council. What's a council? Well, a council is every year Rome elected two men to be magistrates over the whole Roman Empire. They basically were the administrators of the whole Roman Empire, and this particular proconsul reported to them. Now, interestingly enough, this man had the same last name as Paul. Paul was actually Paulus. That was Paul's last Roman name. All Romans had three names, just like we have three names. I guess unless you're famous, then you, maybe you have one name like Cher and some of those other people, but most people have three names. And the text doesn't tell us what this man's first name was, but his middle and last name were Sergius Paulus. The Bible never tells us what Paul's first and second Roman names, just that his last name was Paulus. Now, the proconsul is said to be intelligent, and he wanted to know what was going on in his island. What were these two men who were going from town to town, causing a little bit of a stir? What was going on with them? So if anything happened, he could report back to Rome on what they were teaching. Now, from this section, we can see that the Holy Spirit provides opportunities to proclaim the message of Christ. As we plan our evangelizing to the area that God has called us to, Algonquin, Barrington Hills, Carpentersville, by doing it by serving and being the heart and the hands and the feet of Jesus, we will have opportunities to share why we're doing what we're doing, to proclaim the Jesus, the only one, the one who is the bridge between sinful man and God, the only one who can reconcile sinful man 
back to um, God. And I have a question for you. How are we doing with sharing the gospel? And I don't ask that to make you feel guilty because guilt is a lousy motivator. I asked that, I asked it of Pastor Todd, I asked it of the elders, I asked it of the staff, I asked it of myself all the time. How are we doing with sharing the gospel? We've had some success. There's a ministry we have here called Grief Share. And Grief Share has a city, series of videos they show people that are going through grief to lead them through grief. But one of those videos presents the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these people hear the gospel. And that's produced fruit. Eight people have come to know the Lord because they heard the gospel. How about us? If you're like me, my introverted side comes out sometimes and I, I get a little intimidated and sometimes I start to have a little bit of fear in my heart. Why? I don't know. But what I keep coming back to is a verse out of 2 Timothy 1.7 that says this. I think it's an important verse. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Man, how I need those three things to share the gospel. And if you think about those three things, they're often, if we don't do those three things, those are often reasons people don't come to the gospel. Now, the text also tells us that we're going to run into unexpected events that occur that we never plan on. The Holy Spirit's going to bring things in our lives that we couldn't even envision, like coming to this building, like getting land on Route 25. We didn't plan for any of that. The Holy Spirit did. And what that shows us is that we're not in charge. Praise God. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is. Let us dedicate ourselves to pray for the Holy Spirit's power and love and self-control. So we see that the Holy Spirit not only calls, but also helps us proclaim the good news of Jesus. Now in our last section, we'll see that the Holy Spirit is also the one who defends the gospel and overcomes opposition. Follow along now as I read our last section, verses 8 through 12. But Elamas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here Luke tells us that Bar-Jesus had another name, probably a moniker or a nickname called Elamas. It probably means wise one. As Saul and Barnabas are speaking to the proconsul, Bar-Jesus suddenly realizes that what they are saying is threatening his power. It's threatening his power base with the proconsul. It's threatening his livelihood, his ability to make a living. This is then what we call a spiritual battle. 
It's a power encounter between the Holy Spirit who is speaking through Paul and the evil forces that are working through Bar-Jesus. Now from here on in Acts, Dr. Luke is going to refer to Saul as Paul because that's his Roman name and he'll be speaking primarily to a Roman audience. The Holy Spirit now speaks directly through Paul and cuts through the deception and says the truth about this so-called wise one. He actually is the son of the devil, or he belongs to the devil or Satan. The Greek term here is diabolos, which means adversary. Thus Paul, as he tells us later in Ephesians 6, recognizes the force that gives Bar-Jesus his power. His boss is the devil. He's full of deceit and villainy. That's a word we don't hear much anymore, villainy. I like that. It actually means a scoundrel or a criminal who works evil. As Paul here recalls Proverbs 3.6 and Proverbs 10.9 and Isaiah 59.8. It happens over and over again in the Old Testament where God's way is a straight way. The way to God is a straight path, whereas evil is a crooked path that leads away from God. The Holy Spirit then empowers Paul with a judgment for Elymas, just like Peter did with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. It's kind of ironic and perhaps purposeful that Paul gives him this judgment because the man is spiritually blind. But remember, when Paul was on the Damascus Road and he saw Jesus Christ, he also was judged with blindness, so he knows what this feels like. So it's ironic that he's given the same judgment to Elamas. But he did it for a time because he knows that, like himself, he had a period of time when he was blind that God allowed him to look at his life and repent and come to faith in Jesus. And he's hoping for the same for Elamas. Dr. Luke here uses a term that we uh, translate as mist. And that was actually a medical term of the period to describe blindness. Isn't that interesting? The result of this battle, this power encounter, is that Paul can deliver the gospel message in truth and in power. And what's the result? The proconsul puts his faith in Jesus. The power encounter was the trigger that allowed the power of the gospel to take hold in his heart and his mind. He was astonished at their teaching. You know, in our culture and times, the supernatural is often left to comic books and Marvel movies and horror movies and how much easier it is for evil beings to flourish when most people don't realize that they exist or can see them. But make no mistake, these spiritual forces have power. It's nothing compared to God's power. It has been vanquished for all eternity by Christ's death and resurrection. But for now, it still wreaks havoc in our lives. Scripture is clear that we are to steer clear of all sorcery in the black arts because we don't have the power in and of ourselves to confront or control this power. We'll see later on in Acts when Paul goes to Philippi what happens to men who mess with evil beings that they know nothing about. They get their butts kicked. If you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit behind you, you are in a bad place. In our culture, power encounters, spiritual battles between the forces of evil and the Holy Spirit happen each day 
in all of our lives. Let me repeat that. In our culture, in our lives, spiritual battles between the forces of evil and the Holy Spirit happen each day in all of our lives. It's usually not as dramatic as in our text today. Often the dramatic ones happen where the gospel is penetrating areas where evil has had generations to take a deep foothold, a stronghold. Thus, on the mission field in places like India and Africa and Asia, you'll see these reports of these power encounters. Those who bring the Jesus film to new areas often describe these power encounters that they have. Craig Keener, in his excellent book on miracles, it's a two-volume set. I highly recommend the book as a reference in your library if you like books like me. But in this book, he describes all the miracles that have occurred since the biblical time to all the Middle Ages and even into our current day. And he also describes some power encounters, including some that he himself has witnessed when he was a missionary in Africa. And he describes one. There was a Christian in Nigeria by the name of Joffrey Numbair. And Joffrey's whole family were non-believers. And his family, because he was spiritual, his family was being attacked by a juju priestess in 1971. That would have been a pagan priestess in the area. And he finally got so tired of it that he finally confronted her and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop! And at that very moment, the woman staggered backwards, was unable to speak, and lost her mind, and never tormented anyone else in that village again. At that moment, his family, which was present for that, saw the power of the Holy Spirit and put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we may often feel like we're losing the battle, like we're being overcome by evil, falsehood, deceit. But Scripture tells us clearly that the power in us through the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name is greater than the power in our culture of evil. We may not always carry the day, but God has told us in no uncertain terms that he has already won the war through Jesus' Christ's death and resurrection. Our job is to be faithful, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit defend the name of Jesus and oppose evil. To conclude our time together, I want to look for just a second at our bridge vision and our bridge mission. On the screen, you'll see what should be familiar to you. It's our bridge vision. Christ has called the bridge community to gather in community. Community, as we've learned the hard way, is so important. To gather together, to encourage each other in the Lord, to build each other up, to hold each other accountable is vital to the life of a church. And now we're doing that again through our Bible studies, our small groups, and I hope you've all been able to come together to grow. I'll put a plug in there. If you haven't, please come. We would love to have you, and it's always a great time. But he's also called us to grow in Christ, to deepen our faith by going into God's Word and learning and becoming mature in Christ. And finally, he's called us to go, to go outside of these walls, to go into our communities and serve, but also to share and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And in all of that, gathering, grow, and go, all of it, we do to give glory to God. The bridge mission 
is to impact God's kingdom by introducing our world to Jesus Christ and helping to make his disciples. Helping who to make his disciples? Helping the Holy Spirit to make his disciples. The word mission comes from the Latin verb to send. God desires us to look outside our walls, and so God has sent the Bridge Church to the areas of Barrington Hills and Algonquin and Carpentersville. More than likely, very few of us, if any, will have a power encounter like Barnabas and Paul had on Paphos. And it's unlikely that any of us will experience the power of what happened at Hernhut. I hope that we do. I pray that we do. But each of us can make ourselves available to the Holy Spirit to be on assignment for Jesus Christ. Spend time in prayer. Not a quickie. Quickies are good throughout the day, but spend time in dedicated prayer. Spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ in prayer. Spend time in God's word. Grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. As you hear the Holy Spirit calling you, let it be affirmed by the local body of Christ. As you experience the power of the word of God, as you share with others about Christ, allow the Holy Spirit to speak through you by being available, by being prepared, by being obedient. As you encounter the resistance of the forces arrayed against the gospel, know that Christ Jesus is right there beside you. In fact, Christ Jesus is right inside of you as he promised. And he will walk through anything that you come up against because he has already defeated and gained victory over the evil at the cross. Paul and Barnabas lived this victory out over and over and over again. But they still suffered for Christ. As Christ suffered, they suffered. Folks, we're going to suffer for Christ as well as we live out this victory. Don't let it discourage you. May we all allow the Holy Spirit to call and send us. May we allow the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ through us. And may we allow the Holy Spirit to battle the evil arrayed against the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. And through it all, may God be glorified in all that we do as we build his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Mighty Heavenly Father, how I thank you for Jesus. How I thank you that you have defeated the powers of evil. That you are advancing your kingdom here on earth. And that you allow us to be called and sent with the great news of Jesus. Help us to have hearts that yearn to be with you in prayer. Help us to have hearts that just can't hold in the good news of Jesus. Unify us in our mission for Christ. May we not fear the evil forces arrayed against us, but may we wait on your Holy Spirit to empower and send us. May your name be glorified here and now and into all eternity.